Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined for our 10th movie podcast no less by my friend Pete Spiliakos. And we're going to talk about a movie on its 30th anniversary, Die Hard. The summer hit of 1988, a culture-defining movie for a decade or more, really the greatest achievement of action movies in American movie making, and also the movie that made John McTiernan, its director, an incredible success, and uh, it is in the middle of his great run. He had made Predator a year before in 87, and in 1990 he made The Hunt for Red October, so you have these three different kinds of action movies or thrillers even with more than a bit of horror in the case of Predator and all of them in all their differences magnificent and defining for at least the generation that grew up with action movies. Pete, I know you've thought about action movies yourself a lot and about how Die Hard has influenced movies and what came of action afterwards. So how about we start here? Yeah, I think that one of the things that make Die Hard so interesting, especially for an American audience that by 1988 had never really seen the Hong Kong action movies, It was a huge improvement in what action movies were. I mean, I always compare Die Hard to movies like Chuck Norris' Invasion USA. Now, it's a very cheap movie, but it's basic structure where two guys shoot each other. It's one guy pulls a trigger and another guy falls down. That's pretty common among American action movies of that era. In between Die Hard and Terminator 2, they basically pulled American action movies in two different directions. One, it's the more fantastic science fiction version. But Die Hard was extremely influential in how it wrote movies that were basically... Are they realistic? No, but it's ultimately one human being shooting at or punching another human being rather than a robot. And the action scenes are so well-directed and so thrilling that even now they hold up, whereas American action movies, especially shoot 'em up action movies from earlier in the decade, really don't hold up for the most part. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so influential, is that for people of a certain generation, Gen Xers, maybe even some baby boomers, it opened up the possibilities of what action movie directing could be. I mean, I suspect directors have been watching the Hong Kong action movies and had a pretty good idea. But that was the first time those possibilities became open to a mass audience, and it really elevated audience expectations in what an action movie should look like compared to what it had been even two or three years earlier. Yeah, McTiernan and his team came up with a remarkable wealth of details and of visual cinematic structures. His director of photography, Jan de Bonto, who was Dutch, brought in, as did McTiernan, who had studied European filmmaking, all sorts of new techniques of editing and cutting that were especially difficult to do because you didn't get approval. McTiernan talks about this. He was a young director, he had just made two movies, and people didn't really trust him. And so if his editor or his cinematographer would have been against him, the studio would have cut his ability to make a movie that feels like a dynamic cinematic entertainment that continuously shows you a world that's not realistic, but it's incredibly persuasive. It's incredibly plausible and moves from one interesting thing to another in such a way that you continuously see other interesting things happening. Partly it's just details like the big Nakatomi Plaza 30th floor hole there for the party. There's a reproduction of Frank Lloyd's right falling water at a fairly large scale. There's no real reason for that to be there except that it's really, really interesting. 
all sorts of logos and all sorts of design choices also manage to keep you interested at the visual level and at the same time of course cutting on motion and the way the dialogue also is delivered in a way to work with editing in terms of pacing and speed makes for an incredibly fluid experience and this is what cinema is supposed to be it makes it really really cinematic kinetic in motion that is but if you look at action movies I mean, there are a few exceptions. Terminator, Predator, which was also McTurnan. If you look at American action movies prior to Die Hard, it's amazing how stilted they are. Not simply in terms of dialogue, but also in terms of their action scenes. And it's also how patterned they are. One interesting thing about Die Hard is that the first time you watch it, especially if you're an American living in 1988 or 1989, everything that happens is a surprise. But it, like you said, it never actually breaks a verisimilitude. There's never the moment where you are taken out of the story because there's a tonal error or something breaks the internal logic of the story. And that's just good, solid, careful filmmaking of the kind you, when it's not there, you miss it when those kinds of inappropriate tonal shifts happen. But it's a combination of techniques that were innovative to Americans in 1988 and also good, solid, careful filmmaking where everything that happens is intentional. There are no discordant details in the movie, but at the same time, it doesn't seem slick. Once again, you don't want to say it's realistic, but at the same time, everything is constantly plausible because once you are thrown into this universe, there's never a moment in the movie that seems out of place. Yeah, and it seems like this is what you get when talent really believes in what they're trying to achieve there and continuously looks for ways to fix things, to make something stick. They, at some level, seem to be with the audience thinking, would you really go with that? Is this really something you find believable? And they continuously find answers to problems with their scenes. And it can be small things in characterization. You know Bruce Willis is a dangerous guy because there's one moment of shock when his gun holster appears in the first scenes on the plane as he comes to California. It's not a big deal, it's just played the right way to get you a sense of gravity. But you also know he's an everyman for a similar reason. He doesn't sit in the back of a limo. Argyle comes to pick him up in a limo, courtesy of the wealth of the Nakatomi Corporation, but he doesn't sit in the back because an American wouldn't do that. It's not a democratic thing to do. And these things are continuously arranged throughout the movie in order to strengthen characterization and to add a bit of depth. At the same time, there are bigger structural issues. Die Hard uniquely played the bad guys for intrepid heroes. That part of the movie is played like a heist. You're with them in your heart, believing that they should get this, that they're going to break through the seals. And of course, when eventually the bad guys do get into the vault, all of a sudden Beethoven's Ode to Joy plays. Now, you would think that this is against the moral structure of the story. But it's not against the psychological interest in the story. At some level, this is a heist problem, and you want to see it solved. It's your natural bent as an audience. You're not really that moralistic. You want the bad guys to fail at everything, to be bad at their job, not just bad guys. So there are all these things that show people thinking about the story, trying to get structures and details right. And that's how they're able to present something new to the audience, but at the same time, something the audience had been looking for all along. They're not trying to reinvent storytelling here. They're trying to get it right because they seem to believe in it just as much as the audience does, but from the perspective of the craftsman. But having said all that, the script is actually a surprisingly layered product where there's a lot of themes and there's a lot of ironies. You would think in a regular action movie, that movie's actually trying to tell you a lot about American class, about American race, 
is trying to tell you something about international politics, is trying to tell you about the masks that people wear. There's a lot of institutional analysis in the movie that you wouldn't necessarily expect in an action movie. And one of the things that you like to talk about is how the movie is one of the last examples of the blue-collar hero in American cinema. Yeah. Just think about the relationship between the hero and the villain. Our protagonist, John McClane, is a cop from New York who's going out west, as all America, of course, is, because his wife left him. She went and got herself some of that freedom you get out west and took the kids with her, and she's now more successful than he is, which he is man enough to admit he resents. And at the same time, he's trying to maybe get her back. It's just that he has no idea how. He's not at all fit for this new situation. And you see with that part of the plot in mind, the invasion of Japanese technology and how Japan is the future, which was a story trope in the 80s, and how this new financial future doesn't really have any room for the blue-collar man. Now, the antagonist, on the other hand, Hans Gruber, played by the delightful Alan Rickman in his movie debut, is slick. He tries to be as well-dressed, as well-educated, as well-spoken, as sophisticated, if not even more than all these corporate types, because at some level he wants to curry favor with the oligarchy or to look like he belongs in this futuristic oligarchy that's based in finance, in technology, in skyscrapers and corporations, in the 80s dream of materialistic transcendence. He's by no means blue-collar. It's the hero whom you can trust at the moral level. The villain is interesting at an intellectual level, in a very different way. And if you compare that with our own situation nowadays, invariably we turn to heroes who are oligarchs or friends of the oligarchy. That's what they should be calling the Avengers, friends of the oligarchy. They're Tony Stark powered and then they contain all sorts of other examples of this idea that only the combination of super science and super money can make people interesting or worthy of attention. Compared to Die Hard, we see that somehow in 30 years, if not less, we have completely lost the idea that we should be maybe somewhat skeptical of intellectual claims and we should be more respectful of the moral claims of blue-collar or working-class heroes. Yeah, Hans Gruber is also a satire of 1970s Euro-communism. Several things you see about Die Hard. It's an interesting combination of things that weren't quite archaic yet and things that were prophetic. One of them is, like you said, Nakatomi Plaza. 1988 was like towards the end of the Japanese scare in American politics and culture. The idea that all Americans will be working for Japanese somehow would later become a China scare. It's a little bit dated, but it's perfectly reasonable that a Japanese corporation would have bought an office tower in L.A. in 1988. It's also prophetic in certain ways. So the FBI portrayed as a bunch of reckless bureaucratic cowboys who are indifferent to human life and are willing to barge into situations violently, confident in overwhelming power and more than willing to let hostages be killed. McTiernan anticipated Waco by four years. But there's also Eurocommunism, these small terrorist groups all over Europe. You had the Red Brigades in Italy, you had the Beider-Meinhof gang in Germany, you had November 17th in Greece. And, you know, McTiernan feels like he went to school on them. Not just that these guys, that these communist heroes were not working class people. These are people who were unlikely to have ever worked a day in their life for the most part. These guys were college dropouts whose politics were, for the average person, a completely incomprehensible mismatch of sub-Marxist drivel. No normal person could understand what these people are saying. They were not trying to lead a working class movement. And Hans Gruber is both a representation and a parody of them. Whereas Gruber, as a protective coloration, mimics their verbiage, save my brothers from Asian dawn. But at the same time, he is a completely self-seeking predator. 
the movie telling you that these guys say they're for the people, but ultimately they're for their own self-aggrandizement. In real life, they're acting out their megalomania politically, but for all practical intents and purposes, when it comes to selfishness, there's no reason to choose between Hans Gruber's larceny and these guys' bombings or kidnappings or hostage situations. These are basically the same thing. And of course, it also seems to indicate that Hans Gruber at some point was a legit leftist, but kind of woke up because apparently he had been in radical movements for a while. And eventually he realized that these people were frauds and started wearing his left wing terrorism as a mask. Yeah, you can use this stuff eventually for money making because nobody really believes in it anyway. This is not a matter of organizing or taking power. These people may seem somewhat romantic and idealistic. But in fact, they're pretty horrifying because they're using violence for self-aggrandizement, as you were saying. They're incredibly petty at one level and incredibly dangerous at another. And the movie does a good job of revealing how this comes out from behind a veneer of revolution, of lefty moral credentials that the press to some extent is eager to swallow. And so they know that they can play the press. This also is supposed to reveal something, as you were saying, about the corruption of institutions in democratic life. There is a certain eagerness to take the terrorists more seriously than they take themselves, and in entirely the wrong way. The one thing that's incomprehensible, it would seem to people who romanticize this stuff, is that these people really are villains. There's something petty and murderous about them, and whether they're in it for glory or money amounts to the same thing. And now we also want to play off your idea that Die Hard is actually a fading genre of blue-collar heroes, where you see this not just in the Marvel heroes. In the Marvel Universe, you have Tony Stark, who is literally a tech billionaire, and the Avengers are basically his friends. But you see it in the DC Comics the last decade, who is the most successful DC superhero character. You have Batman, who is a legacy billionaire, but he's still a billionaire. You have Clark Kent, and Clark Kent's business is kind of a 1970s understanding of what it means to be a newspaper journalist, where it's a respected, relatively affluent profession. You have Wonder Woman. She's an aristocrat. She was raised by the queen. She's a princess. You know, Jason Momoa's Uncle Man is actually an attempt to do a DC superhero character who comes from a kind of working class background. But one of the things that's interesting is that Die Hard wasn't just a very successful movie. Like, almost all very successful movies spawned imitators. You know, you had Die Hard on a boat, which is under siege. You had Die Hard on a bus, which is speed. Neither one of those movies really imitated Die Hard's common man politics. Whereas Die Hard is all the way through about the common man. Not just John McClane, also Al Powell, the sergeant, also the chauffeur. At the end of the day, they're the ones who always rise to the occasion. It's not the police chief. It's not the FBI. It's not the corporate raiders. It's not journalism. It's normal guys who, when institutions fail, their values impose order on a situation. Whereas with Speed and Under Siege, they're not about the common man restoring order to chaos. It's about greatness coming out. In Under Siege, you have a guy who's seemingly ordinary because he's a cook, but he's actually a super soldier who is only a cook because he keeps it too real and his superiors can't stand it. But he's not really a common man. He is a superman. And with Speed, you have a guy who's a technical professional in Keanu Reeves who has to discover his own greatness because eventually some of his institutional supports are torn away from him. Jeff Daniels is supposed to be the real brains of the operation, but then Keanu Reeves has to find his own greatness. 
But neither one of them are movies about average guys rising to the occasion. They're about great guys who are unrecognized. And it makes for different kinds of movies. One of the key scenes in Die Hard is Argyle, the chauffeur, punching out one of the bad guys. Die Hard is a movie about institutions accepting that individual human decency is crucial to success. Die Hard's a much more egalitarian movie than either one of those, because one's about the common man and the other two are about how society is ultimately dependent on greatness to survive. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's precisely because the everyman hero, the comic cowboy, Bruce Willis talks about Roy Rogers, that's who he likes. This everyman, comic, defiant, but morally realistic and grounded man is the core of the story. And it's precisely for this reason that you get the criticism of society that you get. This entirely depends on the realism of the character's moral outlook. He is not deluded by power. And he doesn't think off the bat that power and morality go together, which is what you'd have to believe to believe in Marvel. And this makes for a great shift that is under-analyzed, to say the least. People do not want to see that our cinema has turned, presumably because of our own society, our own beliefs, towards success worship, towards conformism at the top and towards the top. The defiance of Bruce Willis is impossible to find anymore. You can't take the sarcasm of Iron Man as a comparison because what is he skeptical about? His own enormous powers that he continuously cultivates and grows? Where is skepticism of power? Should be the question for people who are thinking about Die Hard and its legacy. And you're perfectly right that a lot of the movies later really went in the direction eventually of Matrix and things like that. You have to discover that you're special to secure your own greatness and rise to the top. And that brings out another difference. One reason John McClane is so attractive is that he's confident. And that has to do with the fact that he doesn't think his way of life sucks. He's not looking to run away from who he is and from his life. It's much easier indeed to protect your way of life or to think it worthwhile if you actually like it. And if you, to a reasonable extent, like yourself. And that's another part of what makes the movie attractive to audiences. It does implicitly say that the way of life for American people is fine. It's a good thing. It's not the case that only wealthy, financial, influential people are worthwhile and the rest of us don't matter. This too seems to have changed in important ways and it's why we worship more and more celebrity heroes. Well, the movie also understands society ultimately is dependent on the foundation of individual and mass-based virtue. The institutions can't save you. If society is going to survive, there has to be a certain background virtue. Individuals have to be willing to stand up. And these individuals aren't themselves going to be, once again, to borrow the Lego movie's great verbiage, the special. The only people in the movie who save anybody are John, Argyle, and Al. They're the only effective people. Al's a sergeant, but he's a sergeant who's been taken off duty because he accidentally killed somebody. He lost his self-confidence. But these are people who are not merely the products of institutions. Their powers and their abilities are not ultimately dependent on those institutions, and they're people who are living normal lives. I mean, what does John McClane say? He says, you think you're John Wayne. He goes, no, I'd like to be Roy Rogers. Well, Roy Rogers was a guy who settled down, and Roy Rogers only committed violence when he absolutely positively needed to and would have been quite happy never, ever having engaged in violence. 
Roy Rogers is the vision of a man who's competent in violence, but would prefer to live in a civilized society, but is at the same time willing to protect it. But he's not a super soldier. He's not an action hero. He's just a guy who's willing to stand up for himself and his family and his community. That's where John McClane is. Whereas, like you said, a lot of our heroes now are super people. We're not expecting people at the bottom of society or in the middle of society to have much of a say over how anything goes. The final scene in The Avengers is probably the best example of it. Eight and a half million people in New York City are completely just spectators to this giant battle. They don't matter at all. Of course, the same thing is also true about Man of Steel, where there's a battle between Superman and Zod, and obviously you have an enormous number of casualties. Now, I actually do think that Man of Steel 2, as designed, was actually going to deal with this problem. What happens when social power makes most people mere spectators? I think that was going to be the theme of Man of Steel 2 before the suits messed it up. But Die Hard's message is, at some point, under stress, institutions are going to fail, which means that private virtue is going to have to fill the gap. Now, we're not going to build a society entirely around it. You want healthy institutions. But at the end of the day, you can't have healthy institutions in the absence of a healthy society. And at the margin, a healthy society at some point has to substitute, however temporarily, for institutions. And also, one of the themes of the movie is power and the desire for power and wealth is corrupting. And the corruption isn't just the criminals, where you have these guys who are nominally egalitarians, but actually murderous thieves. But the corruption is also obvious in the FBI. They're off on an adventure, and they have a license to kill. And not just a license to kill terrorists, they have a license to kill hostages. As long as you save 49% of the hostages, you're okay. Actually, if you kill all the hostages, you're still probably okay. They're completely reckless. But also the news media. You have a reporter who is willing to do anything to get the story. He's willing to put hostages at risk for self-aggrandizing purposes. And there's a criticism of corporate culture. You have these business guys who are completely incapable of understanding rules. These corporate raiders who think they're killers because they use the language of violence in everyday business, but they're not killers. These guys are killers, and that's one of the lessons of the movie. But the movie's also clever about how power works in other ways. I mean, how does the reporter get inside John McClane's house? He tells the nanny that he's going to call immigration on her. But what is that telling you here? One is telling you that Holly Gennaro, an affluent business executive, isn't hiring someone who's legal. She's paying less to get an illegal nanny. And the reporter is willing to use her legal status against her in order to put the John McClane children on camera so that he would have a more interesting story. There's a lot there about class and power and institutions and how trying to get what they want within institutions corrupts people. And not just the villains. I mean, the reporter is a straight up villain. But there's something there about Holly Gennaro and the affluent upper class lifestyle in California. This theme has played out over the next 20 or 30 years in the relationship of the California business overclass and everybody else. Yep, that's a very good point. Also, the movie criticizes the therapeutic culture whereby super sophisticated, over-credentialed, bestseller, book-writing, intellectual psychologists try to persuade people that evil is not a real thing and that you really have to change your common sense thinking into something completely different so that you can truly grasp a situation, which the movie shows is completely crazy this need to show off and to make shocking assertions that contradict common sense leads both the press and the kind of intellectual in the completely wrong direction and makes for real irresponsibility. These people are looking to make a show of themselves and to turn their prestige over into entertainment, all the while lying to people about what the hell is actually going on. 
again you need to have a morally confident every man who can act and who acts successfully in order to show that all this verbiage is insane and maybe we can compare the times in this way Die Hard offers a criticism of a society that is too confident in power and that is too willing to hide all sorts of inequalities and all sorts of sources of injustice behind success. Whereas nowadays we have stories that amount to power worship because we're too desperate and we do really identify at one level with the masses of New Yorkers who are under attack, bombed, terrorized and are utterly helpless to do anything and on the other hand we kind of relate to heroes who are vaguely sociopathic who can't really play well with others the theme of all our hero stories is these heroes can't get along to get the job done and of course it's very plausible because we don't get along we cannot find ways to associate and to be effective together and again that turns us towards power worship whatever works ends up being far more justified and the claims of power to embody morality are far more plausible if we as the people feel mostly powerless mostly ineffective mostly confused so for well, all the glamour we're actually in a far more desperate situation part of it is simply a matter of genre to the extent that the superhero movie has supplanted the action movie by definition, superheroes are going to be super in a way that John McLean isn't. They're going to have powers that he doesn't have. They're going to have resources that he doesn't have because that's endemic to the genre. Batman can't be Batman unless he's at least reasonably wealthy. Superman is, well, super. So it's interesting that Iron Man, as conceived in the movies, is a much more slick figure than Iron Man as he's understood in most of the comic books from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Tony Stark is a bit more of a mess than Tony Stark is in the movies. They basically got a lot of his angst out in the first two acts of the first movie, and then he became kind of an omnicompetent master of the universe. But it's also difficult for people to see now how one can act as a lever on events from a ground-level perspective. You do have that a little bit in the Netflix Marvel movies. You have Punisher, Daredevil, Alias. All those TV shows are about people doing things at the grand level and they're kind of broken. But you also notice you don't see them in those Marvel movies. Everything they do is so unimportant to the big picture, they don't really seem to change anything ever. The collective actions seem to be a rounding error on what happens in the Marvel Universe. So you have a world of big social forces where what these important people do matters to everybody. And you have these ground level people... They only affect people locally, but more to the point, it doesn't really matter. They can save all the people that they want locally, unless they're saved by the Tony Starks. They're not really saved at all. The macro, cosmic Marvel Universe basically overwhelms whatever happens in the micro, ground-level Marvel Universe that you see on Netflix. Yeah, that's a very good point. And again, it underscores how we have shifted from questions of moral character to questions of power. Our movies are nowadays built on a cosmic scale, always implicitly or explicitly based on individual powerlessness. Whereas in Die Hard, you can see what society looks like from the point of view of John McClane. Over against his actions and his character, you get a lot of very effective, understated criticism of a society that's gotten too confident and which is getting weaker and weaker for that reason. Its institutions and processes are far less strong than it imagines and far more vulnerable to corruption or deception than it can admit in its pride. And of course, John McClane is also in certain ways better than himself in a moral sense. He's aware of his own weaknesses. 
that he's too afraid to go save somebody he knows will get killed because he doesn't want to die himself that he's not the husband he should be and both in the beginning and the ending of the movie he's man enough to admit that he's never done quite right by his wife and that he's asking a hell of a lot of her and that again suggests a certain moral realism the man isn't exactly a hero he's just hero enough and the movie shows a fairly compelling portrait of the man precisely because there are all these different things in there that amount to a plausible description of a character he is not a symbol for something. He is not a stand-in for something. He does represent moral virtue in America. The people, he is an everyman, but he is more plausible than that. He is not entirely reducible to type. At the same time, he is also morally realistic about the character of violence. There's a lot of showmanship in John McClane, and the movie has to, for reasons of genre, make violence attractive. If you're not interested in murder, in scary stuff, you don't go to see thrillers. The movie is intended very seriously. You're not supposed to joke about it or to think it campy or parodic. You're supposed to be scared when it's scary. You're supposed to be thrilled when it's thrilling. This brings out, perhaps in the best way, what is missing in the overconfidence of a civilized society. There is no fear of and no respect for violence, which is nevertheless necessary. This is the justification of the thriller. People don't like to admit it, but violence is absolutely necessary to do justice. Now, of course, it's implausible that any one of us should ever be caught in a horrifying attack, but these things really do happen. We just have no institutional ways of dealing with it. We are tempted to treat violence as somebody's bad luck and to take no responsibility for it as a society so that we can go on pretending that success really is all that successful, that we're all going to end up wealthy and well thought of. Whereas McLean realizes he's going to have a really, really bad day and he's going to have to do something about it. He is stuck being the man of the hour. Compare Die Hard to the first good Death Wish movie. Death Wish is a movie about a vigilante who attacks criminals. But the message of Death Wish isn't that we should all go out there and be criminals. It's a political protest movie. It's a way of calling American institutions to be a better version of themselves. If you take away your idea from Death Wish that everyone should go around and shoot anybody who looks like a murderer, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. The idea behind Death Wish is American institutions at the local policing level are failing and should succeed. People in the era who didn't think we should really worry about crime or who pretended to believe that crime could primarily be served by improved social services tend to take that hostile interpretation of it. But the whole idea behind Death Wish is what do you expect when local policing fails, it should reform and improve. Whereas with Die Hard, the message isn't that we should all become John McClane's, it's that at the end of the day, institutions cannot save society from itself. A certain amount of personal responsibility at the individual and community level has to be taken because society cannot be saved merely by institutions. Another comparison that struck me is, given the development timetables, a case of parallel development rather than influence, but there's a lot of similarity in attitude between Die Hard and Bonfire of the Vanities. The villains in both imagine themselves as masters of the universe. It's a phrase that was common in the 1980s partly because of a toy line, but Tom Wolfe was using it for that same reason. Whether it's Hans Gruber, whether it's the FBI, whether it's the media, all of these corrupt institutions considered themselves to have a license to do anything they will to anybody who runs across them. In John McClane's role is ultimately to tell these masters of the universe that no individual dignity does exist 
It exists everywhere. You are ultimately bound by your responsibilities to everybody else and your inability to see your own limitations, to see your own responsibilities to others is your undoing. It's the recklessness of the FBI that ultimately leads to their own death. It's the arrogance of Hans Gruber, who had a gun on John, but decided to gloat instead that got him killed. It's the piranha-like quality of the media that gets the reporter punched by Holly Gennaro, who in that moment stops becoming Holly Gennaro, business executive person, and who becomes the person she kind of was when she originally married John McClane, an everyday person. The themes of both of those movies are power that has become disconnected from responsibility, power that has become self-seeking, but also in that way, power that has also become self-deceptive and self-destructive, because by losing contact with reality, they now become vulnerable. Yeah, that's a very good point, and I think you're absolutely right about what Tom Wolfe is doing in Bonfire of the Vanities. He does offer, from a very similar point of view, criticism of the new overconfident, overexcited powers of the day. In Bonfire of the Vanities, you have the distinction between the old wasp rich lawyer and his son, the protagonist, who is becoming a very corrupt guy. The old man still rides the subway. It's a matter of pride with him, however privileged he is, not to think himself above the common man. Now, the son, on the other hand, is obsessed with insulation, with living as far away as possible from anything unpleasant that might happen in New York City. The lives of the other 8 million people are not his problem in any way. And that, of course, is what power without responsibility really means. And why we nowadays turn in such an obsessive, gullible way to these fantastic heroes. We know for damn sure nobody in power cares about anybody who is not in power. And so the confidence and the moral seriousness of requiring some kind of social contract that puts the majority and the powerful in tolerably good relations, this seems to have vanished. John McClane, on the other hand, could feel that this is his job, he's got to do it somehow, and rise that way. At the beginning of the movie, John McClane is the least important person in Nakatomi Plaza, with the partial exception of Argyle, the chauffeur. Sure, they sent a limousine to pick him up, but that's not a show of his importance. That's only to show the wealth and the power of the corporation. And his wife is part of it, and he finds it difficult to find her, to get a minute with her, and everybody who treats him with kid gloves also treats him like a complete stranger there. He knows and they know that he doesn't belong. Where is there any room in this new version of corporate success in America for John McClane there? Well, from their point of view, there isn't, because he's not needed, because violence has been abolished, and moral virtue, to a certain extent, has been abolished, because the beginning of moral virtue is taking personal responsibility acting courageously. And so yeah, there's a great connection at that level between Tom Wolfe and the McTiernan movie. In Tom Wolfe novels, the answer is always the same, stoicism. A man has got to be stoic. You've got to face the bad stuff, you're going to have to deal with the pain, and rise above yourself in a trying situation. That's also the model of these kinds of movies, where a man really does overcome himself to an extent. He really does find a chance to be better than he has been, to prove to himself and to prove to others that he's made a fairly stern stuff. It doesn't set him above mankind like a superhero, but it does prove he's worth something, that he matters, that he makes a difference, that he's not insignificant, interchangeable, replaceable... That's why the everyman hero is so important to us. In Die Hard, all the institutions, even though John McClane's about the only person who's acting effectively, 
the institutions, whether it's the LAPD bureaucracy, the FBI, they treat him as an irritant. He's in the way. We have procedures for doing this. We have experts for doing this. And no matter how much these experts fail, and no matter how much John McLean succeeds, they can't admit that institutions aren't the only thing that can work. But also another similarity between Bonfire of the Vanities and Die Hard, they treat the media in very similar ways. For journalists, humanitarianism is purely a mask for self-aggrandizement, where they tell stories that are cloying and romanticized, but ultimately these are vehicles for individual journalists getting ahead. Yeah, and this is very good criticism of what happened to America in the age of television. It's precisely the temptation to be a spectator to incredibly crazy but moralistic-sounding stories that might end up corrupting the people. The media, these people are openly cynical about the morality they serve up to their audience because they know that what they're hiding behind that morality has to do with fear and anxiety. People keep turning into this kind of news because at some level they love the psychodrama of it all. They want it concealed behind good family values. But what does that mean? It means endangering the family and these children by an asshole reporter who wants to put them on TV to get an award, get something in the ratings, impress his bosses, make himself a household name. So morality is forever hiding cynicism in this story. That seems to be the very dangerous thing because people might believe it people might buy into this idea. And of course, something like the thriller is a good answer to that, because in the thriller, the violence is honest, and that requires a different understanding of the relationship between civilization and violence. You don't have to hide behind morality to get to the psychodrama. You just have to admit where the bad stuff is really happening and be strong enough to confront it. Aside from cynicism, the criticism of the media is that it completely lies to people about where there really is danger, where there really are problems. It makes people feel like they're willing to deal with moral drama and immorality in society, where in fact they're completely avoiding the truth. Yeah, and Bruce Willis' character in Bonfire of the Vanities the same way. One other thing that's interesting is we mentioned Death Wish. Bruce Willis did another Death Wish movie. Didn't see it. Probably not going to see it. One thing that struck me about the new Death Wish movie, just by the commercials, it's set in Chicago rather than New York. But one of the things that made Death Wish such a broadly appealing movie in the 1970s was the distribution of crime in America in that era. Upper middle class Americans, well, like the architect that Charles Bronson played in that movie, shared public spaces in areas where crime was rampant. What that meant was that journalists, architects, engineers, even many mid-level business people, to say nothing of wage earners, they didn't necessarily live in a violent building or even a violent block, but they might often have to walk in an area where even if they weren't necessarily mugged, they knew someone who was. They often felt like they were followed. There was a sense that crime was much more pervasive within a much larger segment of the American population than than now. Violent crime has declined by about 50% from then to now, in the last 40 years, which means that people's experience of crime has changed. But while violent crime has declined a lot, as one guy on Twitter was pointed out, there are places in America where crime is actually worse than it was in 1970. Now, Chicago actually isn't one of those places. I mean, there's places like Baltimore and St. Louis. But the way that crime is distributed now, the people who are likely to experience high crime rates, they're not likely to be upper middle class Americans the way they were in the 1970s, which basically means that these movies just don't speak to nearly as many people. The vast majority of Americans live in places that are safer. And the overwhelming majority of upper middle class Americans live in places that are much safer. 
American violent crime is now concentrated in a relatively small number of places where upper middle class Americans are much less likely to go. We talk about, you know, separating ourselves from crime. Not only crime has declined significantly, and the crime that we have is now basically largely cordoned off from the overwhelming majority of the American upper middle class, which means having an upper middle class guy now acting as a vigilante, there's something that rings false about it versus the 1970s, not just because it's unrealistic to have a white guy shooting up criminals in the south side of Chicago. It would look absurd. Why is this elderly white guy shooting people? It's also because the emotional dynamics that might push people into this they don't exist at a mass level in the same way that they did 40 years ago when Death Wish came out. Yeah, to a large extent, violent crime is now a class phenomenon that only affects the poor. And in urban areas, it's often a phenomenon that primarily affects racial minorities. And one result of that has been that nobody wants to touch the issue and that our pop culture ignores it as well. It's usually the interaction of poverty and utterly broken local political institutions. We're talking about places like the St. Louis area, certain areas in Michigan, certain neighborhoods in Baltimore. We're talking about certain neighborhoods in Chicago. So we're not just talking about minorities. Most American non-whites are much safer from violence now than they were 20, 30, 35 years ago. And it's so much more easy for the American overclass or upper middle class to utterly avoid these places. And they are institutionally broken in ways the shot callers in American politics are okay with all them being broken. The local politicians are being elected, so they're okay with it. And the relatively affluent, powerful, they're never visiting these places in the way that they were in the 1980s. There are a lot of affluent New Yorkers who would have liked to have gone to Central Park, but it felt dangerous. And they resented not going to Central Park. There are zero affluent Americans who are resentful about not being able to visit one of the worst neighborhoods in Baltimore. They don't miss it. It's not their problem. Yeah, you're right. This is primarily a matter of society abandoning a minority of people in a number of places that in certain ways have been written off from America. They can watch America on TV. They just can't live in any comparable way. That's its own kind of moral drama. We just don't have much on it except The Wire. In the 70s and 80s, the story was a rising tide of crime, islands of safety in an ocean of criminality. Whereas we have now an ocean of relatively safe places and these islands of criminality. This is institutional. There's no reason why Baltimore should be as violent as it is, except that Baltimore's institutions are violent. And if Baltimore had better institutions, Baltimore would become less violent. And there's a conspiracy between local politicians who are happy being elected and the American overclass, which is indifferent to it largely because they don't live there. I was reading a story the day about Rahm Emanuel. There's been a huge shooting in Chicago. A bunch of people have been shot. And Rahm Emanuel was meeting about it with a bunch of pastors for, you know, like a religious awakening to end violence. And a religious awakening would be nice, but I'm pretty sure that when it happens, it won't be because of Rahm Emanuel. You have a guy who's responsible for institutions, whose institutions are broken, who is not fixing them at all, but is basically posturing about how to pretend to solve the problem while continuing to serve in office. But you also have the broader American political institutions who are neither willing nor able to do nothing. The Illinois state government is not willing to do anything. Barack Obama, who's Rahm Emanuel's good friend, who was his boss when Rahm Emanuel was White House chief of staff, supposedly lives and works in Chicago. He has no useful ideas about it. And why would he? Barack Obama lived, quote, in Chicago, but in a safe neighborhood, protected not simply by the Chicago Police Department, but were also protected by the University of Chicago's own institutional police department. He was in a double policed area. 
Yeah, and that makes it both a harder story to tell and a harder story to interest a large audience in. Die Hard deals with things rather differently because you've got a man who's coming from Crime Central, from New York, who gets into a corporation that's supposed to be technologized, secure, safely and smartly above normal America. None of the normal concerns apply there, up until a couple of high-tech criminals attack. Of course, that's very implausible. In fact, if you're doing well, you'll be safe. But this is the sort of thing it would take to introduce to well-heeled Americans who are invariably very well protected the notion of what it might mean to be in danger and what their own problems and deficiencies in terms of virtue and morality might be. It doesn't look like you can make money today telling people who are very successful and powerful that they're not as moral as they like to present themselves as being. Yeah, there's also that. We can't imagine anybody who's not wealthy and successful mattering. It's tough to tell stories about people who are not affluent, not educated, taking the decisive action in a positive rather than a negative way. It's tough to think about those things in terms of scale. It was tough enough in the late 1980s. I mean, once again, if you look at the Die Hard sequels, one thing's happened to John McClane again. He can't be John McClane anymore. He has to be a superhero, which means he's John McClane, which also means that the sequels can't be interesting in the same way that Die Hard was. But the Die Hard imitators moved away from every main characters, and they went to Superman. Yeah, there really are a lot of social changes and a lot of changes in our awareness of our powerlessness and what our future likely is that make it very difficult to tell any story like it. Die Hard will remain remembered precisely because it cannot be imitated and at some level people are nostalgic for the time when you could have blue-collar heroes. And in that sense, again, it's understandable why our superheroes have to be super because if the threat isn't galactic, it's not really gonna affect all of us. It's only gonna affect people who are poor and you can't tell a blockbuster on that premise. And also wealth is different. We imagine it differently in 2018 versus 1988. In 1988, wealth was imagined at an institutional level. You have businessmen who are rich by the standards of John McClain, and they control money, but the money isn't ultimately theirs. The money is ultimately the corporations. And what does the Japanese business executive say? I don't have the codes to that money. I couldn't, get, I couldn't access that money even if he wants to. Whereas now, we don't think of wealth as embodied in corporations. We think of it in terms of billionaires. We assume Mark Zuckerberg controls those billions of dollars in Facebook. That's his. Our understanding of wealth is now personalized in a way that it really wasn't. We have tech billionaires who seem like much more masters of the universe than the business executives of the 1980s. Billionaires who created these corporations are now, now super rich in ways that are tough to imagine even in the late 1980s. Yeah, and it's worth wondering in the Jeff Bezos future, if you're going to have any action movies left, is that guy the hero? Is he the villain? Or where does he stand to the action happening? Because all of a sudden, this kind of wealth and influence does cast its own gravitational field. Well, that's true. I think that was supposed to be one of the themes of Man of Steel 2, whereas Lex Luthor was so powerful that he was above control by the community. And at the same time, how do you have wealth tethered to common humanity in the present context? Now, one of the themes of Die Hard is that business power does not actually untether individuals from either morality or vulnerability. One of the themes is affluent businessmen not being above it all. The Japanese businessman comes up to the limitations to his ability to access wealth. 
the white guy who's a negotiator runs across the limits of his negotiating power because ultimately his ability to negotiate really only works with an institutional legal basis. When you remove the institutional legal basis, his ability to negotiate evaporated. He just never saw it. But what happens when you have people with... I remember um, I was watching an episode of Celebrity Poker and Matthew Perry, one of the friends, was one of the celebrities. And I couldn't tell you who the other people were. And Matthew Perry was doing really badly. And at some point, the announcer said, you know, if he really wanted to, he could have us all killed, have the tape destroyed, then have the building buried in order to hide his shame. He has that kind of wealth. Whereas in Die Hard, no individual has that kind of wealth. People are institutionally empowered. But now, to some extent, Tony Stark is simply a metaphor for our imagination of the power tech billionaires have. The super suit and being attractive and witty, along with all that money, is simply a way for us to understand how unimaginable their power is, even relative to rich people 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And how do you bring them down to earth? Whereas Die Hard is about bringing law enforcement institutions, the media, business executives down to earth, how do you bring Jeff Bezos down to earth? How do you bring Mark Zuckerberg down to earth? How is the average person a decisive actor? Now, there should be ways to tell those stories, and eventually we will tell those stories. But it's difficult to imagine now. Yeah, it's worth seeing in comparison just how different wealth, just how different crime looks now, how different society looks therefore on the possibility of a blue-collar hero, and that is to say the possibility of trusting in moral virtues to get an important job done. I don't see what the solution to this problem is anymore, because telling a story about the incredibly rich is possible, although we don't do it, and telling a story about the majority of the population is also possible, and we don't do much of that either, but putting the two together is really, really difficult, and it's not clear that the action genre or the thriller or anything alike to superheroes could give adequate portrayal of where America is from top to bottom. The closest thing that we have to it is the Fast and the Furious movies, where you have people from the margins taking decisive actions. However, whereas the Fast and the Furious movies, especially the later sequels, they lean so much in the direction of fantasy that structurally they're much closer to the Die Hard sequels than they are to Die Hard. These people are, in practice, supermen. Yeah, and because it's only about... by being supermen that they can attract any attention and be less marginal, less eccentric to society. So again, the notion that somebody from the lower classes could become important or even decisive in somewhat plausible social situation to stand for the majority and bring the wealthy to account, it's not clear that we can do that anymore. Even in our imaginations, class separations are far more serious than even our rhetoric about the 1%. And even when we do it, it has to be in a context that's not simply slightly fantastic. It has to be overwhelmingly fantastic. I mean, once again, the Fast and the Furious guys, they're not coming up from the upper middle class. They're not credential professionals. They're not wealthy. They didn't enter the meritocracy through the traditional ways, either through college or through starting college and doing a tech startup. But at the same time, what does it look like when they take decisive action? They're headbutting an SUV with a nuclear submarine in the Arctic, which basically means that in order to tell these kinds of stories, you have to use dream logic, not in anything resembling social realism. Yeah. One thing that comes close to social realism as we see it in Die Hard is the last of Tom Wolfe's four novels, Back to Blood, set in Miami, the first post-American American city where Americans in any recognizable way are now the minority. 
and there you get to see politics, the police, the press, the rich and the poor, and in various implausible ways you see a moral hero from the lower classes, a policeman of Cuban descent, who has to navigate Miami society and who finds himself caught in all sorts of social contradictions and the craziness of American life in the 21st century. That's the closest thing to it, and presumably it could be made into a first-rate action movie if there were any writers or directors involved in it, and if they happen to have the guts to tell strange stories about race and class in America. I suppose that if there is any way to do it, it will involve thinking about how digital technology has changed our world, that it's no longer like Die Hard, you watch TV. There are things that have to do with the powers and the secrets we publicize on social media and how these things, again, tie us up both to tech-based oligarchs and to the public, because you can become instantaneously celebrity without ever ceasing to be an everyman. The one movie that came relatively close to it was the first Unfriended movie. On one level, the movie's about technology, but at a deeper level, you should probably see it. It's about how human relationships are, to some extent, based on masks, and how digital technology undermine that by creating a trail of how one acts. It allows for those masks to be deconstructed. That was actually a pretty good movie about how digital technology has changed people. Not necessarily how they've changed, but how digital technology allows others to track changes in one's multiple self-created identities and masks. So that's a pretty good start. But at the end of the day, unless we're dealing with a Superman hacker, how do we deal with the ability of, say, the tech oligarchs to silence people that they dislike? If you're a Superman hacker, you can create a write-around, but most people aren't going to be Superman hackers. How does one create those authorities? You know, you talk about network. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Okay, how do you do that in the modern world? Yeah, presumably you would have to use digital technology as a new way to appeal to the people so that an everyman can become a celebrity that can't be shut up anymore. And of course, this is not impossible. It's just unimaginable. And it requires the sufferance of the tech oligarchs. If they want to shut you down, maybe they can. And it creates a dynamic where you can challenge authority only to the extent that authority is willing to be challenged. Because our major tech platforms are semi-commons. The people who own the platforms are reticent to use their power too openly because they're afraid that government intervention might formally limit their authority. But at the same time, at the margins, they are willing to use their authority to the extent that there is deniability or to the extent that there is a broad consensus. Yeah. Such a story that tries to bring as much of the wide American world on screen and try to analyze it in terms of class would have to rely not on government checks on technological power, but on public outrage and on the crazy things that happen on the internet to show that there are limits to tech oligarchic power, or that is to say, these people, four or five super billionaires and their minions, they aren't fully in control of their platforms. And they cannot replace human beings by robots, algorithms, and automated procedures or decisions that can plausibly be attributed to automated procedures. So that would also be some kind of defense of human dignity in face of this dehumanizing artificial intelligence. At the end of the day, the tech oligarchical platforms are ultimately vulnerable indirectly to public opinion. Now, these tech platforms are useful for shaping public opinion, but they can only do that to the extent that they're not acting openly, which, one, limits their ability to do so. It doesn't eliminate it, but it limits it. 
And two, it creates risk. To the extent that their manipulation is popularly understood, it increases the risk of government regulation, which means limitation on their power. Like Michael Brandon Doherty says, the response to Trump's election and Brexit will be to manipulate communication so that these things can never happen again. But this manipulation can ultimately only happen only to the extent that the median American never notices that it's happening. Because even though the median American might not like Trump, according to all the opinion polls, that's kind of true. But at the same time, the median American also doesn't want Mark Zuckerberg telling them what to think. So this combination of this vast power, but at the same time, a vulnerability that limits its use, that can be an interesting story. Yeah, so there is some room within our society and within our technology for a realistic description that's based on a plausible story about some combination of everyman American virtues and, on the other hand, luck and technological help in order to find new ways to reach the people to the extent necessary to create public outcry against a naked oligarchy. And perhaps that story will be told. I'm not holding my breath, but it's good to know that it's still possible to do it somehow. Well, to some extent, I mean, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are reactions to this perception of oligarchy. The voters felt that the most powerful in society do not have their best interests at heart. So there are currents, both in the left and the right and the center, that are skeptical of oligarchy, that are for limiting the power of oligarchy. How those are led is ultimately important. You have a Democratic Party that understands that Bernie Sanders' egalitarianism has popular repeal, and they're trying to figure out a way to channel it, while at the same time maintaining their relations with the oligarchs. The thing is, they want to be able to posture as egalitarians, but at the same time, they're on team oligarch. They're perfectly happy with having Mark Zuckerberg use Facebook for their purposes and having them be their shared purposes. I don't think that, you know, Kamala Harris has any problem with her and Mark Zuckerberg teaming up to silence people that she disagrees with. And as part of the deal, he gets to run Facebook as he pleases, as long as his activities don't interfere with her political aspirations. That was certainly the case with Hillary Clinton. I'm sure that's likely to be the case with anybody who gets the Democratic nomination. If Facebook were censoring Trump critics, Donald Trump would be out today talking about how great Facebook is, how great Mark Zuckerberg is. It's simply opportunistic. So basically what you have is that the public skepticism for these tech oligarchies is simply a reflection of the self-interest of individual politicians. It's not attached to any real agenda. Yeah. And so I think this is a good note to close on. As we suggested, there is a lot of class analysis. There are a lot of remarks on society and institutions in Die Hard, and it shows what makes the movie great. You can never quite know what sort of movie is going to be popular or if popular movies are going to have any staying power. But what makes them great is always they understand what America is going through, and they have something intelligent to say about it. And not only worthwhile at the time, but as we see, in hindsight, 30 years later, you can look back on what these movies said, how they influenced culture and reflected on society, and of course also how the circumstances have changed since, and therefore how culture would have to change to deal with them adequately again. So thanks for joining me, Pete, and let's do this again soon. My pleasure, Titus. Till next time. All the best.